0: Well, I have in my head a picture of what D-Day was like. And granted, a lot of my picture of D-Day is uh, carved from the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you've ever seen that movie, you remember uh, how crazy D-Day was. It was the day that the Allied forces regrouped in England. They set across the English Channel, and they all across the coast of France, they attacked the Nazis and began to take back Europe. And really, a lot of historians point out that D-Day, it was so significant because it was the day when really the battle was won. It was the day when many, many lost their lives storming the shore as a torrent of bullets rained down on them, killing people left and right. And as they stormed that shore, that very day, the victory was won. But I have in my head, as we think, I think about D-Day, as I think about World War II, and what a great sacrifice all of those young men made for our country, for the world, really. And as I think about that day, and that day the victory being won, I, I can imagine a scenario after D-Day. Because while the victory was won and the tide of the war was turned, really, many say at that point, it was really inevitable. But at that point, still, working behind the shores in France, carving the way towards Germany, were soldiers. And I can imagine, in my head, as I'm imagining those troops marching across Europe towards Berlin, I can imagine a scenario where in one group of soldiers, there was maybe an unintentional traitor in their midst. You know, someone who didn't realize it, but his actions were giving away their position. You know, maybe he had been duped by an enemy, giving away secure information. Maybe he had been uh, just unawarely giving away information. But somewhere in their midst, someone that was actually working for the enemy. Someone working against the cause. Some, maybe it was intentional, maybe it was unintentional. But this idea of working for the enemy. You know, I like D-Day because I think it's a picture of what the New Testament church is doing after the resurrection. You see, the resurrection in all intents and purposes was D-Day. It was the day in which Jesus conquered the grave. The resurrection was the day in which Jesus set it all right when he defeated the enemy. And yet here we are continuing his work. This is our mission. It's what we're doing. We're bringing the power of the kingdom of God to this world the power of the resurrected Christ into this world. Can you think of anything more important, really? Can you think of anything more important than doing God's bidding in this world, bringing his kingdom to this kingdom? The battle has been won, and now we are soldiers fighting to see God's victory inevitably. We're doing this together. But what if someone in our own midst was working for the enemy? What if you or I were inadvertently working for the enemy? That's the question that we face when we get to Acts chapter 5. Now, we've been in Acts for a while, I think this is message 12 or 13 in the series. Um, we're slowly plodding our way through, and let me just give you a big picture of where we've been to remind you where we're at in Acts. See, up to this point, things have been going really well in the church, especially internally. Um, So you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends. He gives them a mission. Remember that? He says, he gives them a mission. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. And he sort of sends them out. He, He reiterates the mission that he had given them at the end of the Gospels. And so Jesus ascends into heaven. And then the very first thing we see happen is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes And he fills them, and he indwells them, and he he fills them with his power to do his work. And so in the Gospels, we saw people coming to Jesus. And now in Acts, we see them coming to Jesus through the work of the church. And people are, it's crazy, 3,000, 5,000, these numbers are thrown around in the early chapters of Acts of all these people who believe in Jesus, and Peter and John, because of this, are dragged before the Sanhedrin. And remember, this persecution begins. And there's, they have this boldness. They pray for this boldness we've been talking about. God, make us bold as a church. And then they have this cool unity that Thomas talked about last week. And I still remember his outline. He, he talked about, uh, you know, wear, wear a common hat as a church, a common heart, common attitude, and a common testimony. And so there's this picture of this beautiful unity of purpose and purpose everybody's on the same page and they're looking out for each other and together they're all working to break in to help this kingdom break into this world. And it's going well and the Holy Spirit's moving and the church has purpose and they're living generously together and and the text tells us that some were selling their stuff and then giving out the money for each other. And Barnabas is a guy that illustrated this. Look at, I started in chapter 4 because I think it's important for the context of what we're talking about. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, uh, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Okay, so we get this kind of background on on Barnabas. And, And Barnabas sold a field he owned, and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Whether Barnabas is a Levite actually out of the field, it's hard hard to tell. He was from Cyprus. uh, But this may have been a grave plot. But the point is, he took something of his, he sold it, he trusted the apostles, he put the money at their feet, and he said, Use this for the glory of the church. The glory of Jesus through and in the church. And so Barnabas got it. He got it. He presented this money to the apostles. He put the unity of the church ahead of himself. And it's this beautiful picture of the church working like it's supposed to. And uh, man, I wish I could tell you some of the stories about how the people from Waukee Community Church are helping each other. Some of them are confidential. Some of them are not. But man, it's cool to see this here in our midst. And we get it, you know. We get this idea. And Barnabas got this idea. He got it. He put this He put the unity and the the glory of Jesus through the church, he put it above his own needs. And he's willing to sacrifice his stuff for the church. It's really kind of a utopian picture of the church at this point. And so what Luke wants us to know is that the church is going to encounter their first problem, internal problem. Not everyone was unified in this kingdom breaking. Someone was in it for themselves. Someone was, in essence, working for the enemy. Maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally. And what we're going to find out is that the church of Jesus Christ is way too important to be inadvertently working for the enemy. Have you ever wondered if that was you? Maybe someone who was inadvertently working for the enemy? Have you ever wondered that? Or just thought, you know, we can look around us and we can say, oh, maybe that person's working for the enemy or that person or that person. But how about you? Have you ever thought maybe you inadvertently were working for the enemy? Today, I want to use this passage in Acts chapter 5 to help us avoid that. To help us as a church avoid any of us working for the enemy. And I I know some of you are going to fall over. I only have a two-point sermon today. And so uh, it's not a three-point. Thomas, great model of a sermon last week. I only went with two. Um, But to avoid working for the enemy. That's the question we're asking. And, and here's the, the first thing you need to know. To avoid working the enemy, you need to root yourself in the holiness of God. You need to root yourself in the holiness of God. So when we get to Acts chapter 5, you know we set this context and these people in the church are selling their stuff, and Barnabas sacrificially gives. And as a result, I'm sure that like Barnabas would have made the flyer in our bulletin today. Good things are happening you know at the first church of Jesus right good things are happening look at this and uh, as a result I'm sure that Barnabas received a lot of praise Barnabas received you know a lot of Wow that's a great way to go Ananias and Sapphira talk and they follow the exact same pattern they say hey we can do this they sell a field Ananias brought it to the Apostles feet just like Barnabas, that's why these, it's so important to not get distracted by the numbers in your Bible. Sometimes that five is not just a whole thought break. Remember, there are no numbers in the original uh, book of Acts. So you know, so just take those out sometimes. And look, look at this. Barnabas did it. Ananias and Sapphira follow the exact same pattern. Except they hold back part of the money. Verse 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Ananias clearly lied when he set the money at the feet. He clearly lied. And so what happens next is Peter calls him out. Peter calls him out. He says, okay, Ananias, what are you doing? He gives Ananias a chance to fess up, and then Ananias drops dead. Wow. Really? I mean, okay, this is bad, right? I mean, he lied about how much money he brought, or he brought a gift, and and he lied. And Peter says, you know, hey, this 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 was yours to begin with, Peter says. And he says, you could have given whatever part of it you wanted, but why did you have to lie and say it was the whole thing? And honest, that's bad. But really, we sit here and we go, Really, Dave? Really, Luke? Really, God? Is that bad enough for capital punishment? I mean, seriously? It's a lie. It's like a half-truth. We'd all feel better if, you know, Peter just maybe slapped him in the face and humiliated him and sent him home. That would make us all feel better. But Ananias drops dead. And one thing that we come across when we wrestle with this passage is it demonstrates that we do not have a comprehension of the holiness of God we just don't we do not have a comprehension of the holiness of God holiness means one set apart that's what holiness means it's used in, in, in terms of God when we talk about God being separate or different from us a lot of times we think of holiness as being perfection, but that's not really the idea of holiness. That even holiness is separate from his creation, special. It's to be revered. And the enemy tactic then is to make us forget who God is. We forget his character. We forget that he is holy. We, the opposite of holiness is common. Commonness is the opposite of holiness. It's just plain and ordinary. But God is set apart. He's special. He's unique. He's holy. We tend to make God in our image rather than making us in His image. The Bible tells us we were created in God's image, but we love to flip it around. We love to say, okay, God, I'll make you like the God I want you to be. A lot of us like to think of God as grandpa. You know, I, uh, my grandpa died when I was six years old, so I don't have too much memory of him, but... I remember running up to him and picking me up and throwing me in the air and swinging me in a circle, and I knew with Grandpa there was nothing I could do wrong. You know, like as a six-year-old, I got that. Sometimes we like that's our picture of God—the Grandpa in the rocking chair that just pats us in the back and says, "Oh, Sonny, it's okay. Don't worry about it. No problem." This idea that God is only love, that He's only grace. But we must be careful not to take one of God's attributes and blow it out of scope. We must be careful not to make Him something we just want Him to be. It's a dangerous thing to read Scripture through our lens. This is why I talk about this all the time. How do we interpret Scripture? We interpret Scripture in context of Scripture. So we read it. We interpret Scripture through the lens of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And a lot of people are content to stop there. They say, okay, I found the verse I want, so I can do what I want. Yep, check, check, God, you told me. Yes, I can do that. Sweet, I can do what I want. And that's why the church is so important in our lives. we don't just make the Bible say what we want to say. Other believers come around us, and they affirm that. That's how the church works. We tend to throw all that out the window, and we go, God, I'll just make you like I want to feel about you. And then it'll be all great. It's a dangerous thing. God's character remains constant. Old Testament to New Testament. So a lot of people would argue that there are two gods. They would argue that the Old Testament God is very different than the New Testament God. and the Old Testament God is a God of slaughter and vengeance and wrath, and all these people died when you read through the Old Testament. And, uh, but the New Testament is Jesus, you know, and they get this idea. Like in the Old Testament, they go to a passage like Joshua chapter seven. Uh, after the Israelites conquered Jericho, God said, destroy everything. But Achan, this one just normal dude, hid some stuff and dug a hole under his tent, hid some stuff, didn't destroy it, kept it. And as a result, God called him out. A whole bunch of Israelites were wiped out. And Achan's whole, basically, Achan and his entire family were wiped out because of this act of disobedience. And we think, well, that's God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament more like John chapter 8, where Jesus meets the woman caught in the act of Adultery and, and, uh, and he says, "Where are your accusers?" Remember that picture? The accusers just drop away, and he says, "Go leave your life of sin. I don't accuse you either." So it was like, see, there's two very different gods. There's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. The problem is those people forget about Acts chapter five. I mean, here we see a God who is holy. He's separate. He's different. It's hard to argue that. Now, why would God be this way? Why not just a slap on the face? Why not just a slap on the wrist? I think we get a good picture of this if we would flip back to the Old Testament. And I'll just tell you about it. You don't need to flip back there. But in 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's this crazy story of King David. King David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. You might remember this story. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a, a place where the holiest Things were held in the temple. It was a representation of God's very presence. was this ark. And only the Levites could carry it. They were God's set-apart people. Only they could touch it. And David has this huge celebration where David is trying to bring the ark up to Jerusalem to put it in its proper place, to put God in its proper place. And they put it on this special cart. And while the cart and the horses are are drawing the ark of the covenant up to the city... The the cart stumbles and the ark starts to fall and one of David's companions, Uzzah, doesn't want the ark to fall so he puts up his hand to hold the ark and God strikes Uzzah dead because of his irreverent act. That's what the Bible says. And David's reaction was, he was angry, David was afraid and he had Great fear. It's like Acts chapter 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what happened. That was David's same reaction. So, how does Uzzah and that relate to what's happening here? Well, there is this idea laced throughout the New Testament that is coming manifest here in Acts chapter 5. And then the idea here is that the temple in the Old Testament was represented by a tent, the tabernacle, or later, the structure of which the, the, the Ark of the Covenant represented the essence of what the temple was. In the New Testament, the temple is the church. Not a building, but the people. Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's Spirit lives in you, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. You know, we're called to live like a temple. And when we, we horse around and, and we just screw around and we sort of change the character of God to match what we want, we forget that we're his temple, he lives in us. We're called to live like the temple. And so in this, we get this cool idea here of that the Holy Spirit is God. Look at verse, verse 3. Luke, as he's writing this, is just ratcheting up for us. Ananias, how has Satan filled your heart that you have lied? Who did he lie to? Not to the apostles. Not to the church. As the temple of the holy God, Ananias was called to be set apart and holy. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5 at the end, he says, you've not lied to men, but to God. This is one of those passages that affirms the deity of the Holy Spirit. Ananias told a lie directly to God. Because we're the temple, telling the truth is important. I like this quote by N.T. Wright. Listen carefully. He says, we don't like these stories in the Old Testament. uh, Things like Uzzah or Achan. Uh, He says, of course, and... We don't like them any more than we like Acts 5, but we can't have it both ways. If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does these wonderful healings, stands up to the bullying authorities, makes converts to right and left, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough, to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. Part of who we are as a church and living out this temple is that God calls us to be honest. He calls us to be honest with one another. Uh, I was thinking about this as I was reading Facebook this week and scrolling through a feed. I, I changed the pertinent facts, but I want you to see this quote. Uh, the quote on Facebook was, anyone think I can sue hotels for discrimination when I'm told four kids exceeds the number of kids allowed? Or makes me try to get two rooms? Uh, as a guy with six kids, I can relate to this problem, you know? Apparently they don't design hotels for eight peep room for eight people. And, you know, and so obviously this, and so the, the, the comments here, read these comments. The first one was, well, why even tell them? The next one, just lie. If they want to be jerks, be a jerk back. Uh, the next one at the bottom there, what they don't know won't hurt them. It's not technically a lie. Plead the fifth. It's our God-given right. Uh, we never tell them. When it comes time to check in, I go by myself and get the keys, then move the car around and go through a different door. <sighs> Is there another couple here? Just lie. <laughs> that was good. Just tell a lie. Was that all the comments, Richard? Yeah, so... I mean, I was just kind of astounded. I picked out the juicy ones from it, you know. I was just kind of astounded at this, hey, if it's convenient, just tell a lie. There's this total, and, and you know, for the world, that makes sense. But for believers who have the Holy Spirit living in us, who are the temple of the God, lying is like kingdom twisting. When we lie, we forget what we're doing here. We take God's work for granted. We twist the kingdom to serve our own needs. We are God's. We're all unfaithful in this regard. We're all bad temples at some point. So will God strike you down for lying? For defiling his temple? Well, obviously that's not normative for us today because we would all be dead. (laughs) We would have a very small church. (laughs) You know, we would all be dead. So obviously it's not normative because... 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Acts 5 serves a reminder for us to revere God in His holiness, to love Him for His acts of grace, and to know that bringing Him great joy is what we're about. And we bring Him great joy when we do kingdom work. So when we're on mission, when we're... Consider the holiness of God when we ask, that when we consider that truthfulness is who we should be, that's how we should be described. We get the holiness of God, we do it because of that. We inadvertently work for the enemy when we forget this. We get off our purpose. We miss out on what he can do. If you want to avoid working for the enemy inadvertently or purposefully. Root yourself in God's character. Remember that he's holy. We're his temple. The Bible says, Be holy like I am holy. Set apart. Remember that. Root yourself in the holiness of God. The second thing we have to root ourselves in, though, is the importance of the church. The importance of the church. So... If we're going to avoid working for the enemy, we root ourselves in the importance of the church. Satan filled Ananias' heart. That's so interesting. Verse uh, 3, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept yourself some of the money you received for the land? Isn't that interesting? Satan filled his heart. So many people have asked, well, wait a minute. Can a believer who genuinely believes in Jesus be filled by a demon? Can a a believer be possessed where he would live such a life that he would open himself up to give up total control of himself to a demon? And that's a great question. (laughs) Ananias and Sapphira, I think in this passage, are clearly believers. They're clearly believers. They're part of the church. Luke doesn't tell us that they, like other passages in the New Testament, we we read when people are not believers. The New Testament tells us. And so we get no indication that they're not part of the church, Then they're not genuine believers, but here they are, filled, their hearts were filled by Satan. See, the gospel writers tell us when someone is not, Luke leads us to believe that they are. So, can a believer be possessed by a demon? And I, and I think sometimes we get the wrong words for this. A, a believer is filled indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We're the temple. It's God's home. However, a believer can be influenced by a demon. It can be influenced by Satan. We're God's temple. We're his home. But when we forget the holiness of God, the importance of the church, when we saturate ourselves with things that are not holy, that are common, when we live these lives that are just totally distracted and off mission and When we do this, we can open up ourselves to the influence of Satan. Ananias got caught listening to the voice of Satan. The church is something we are together when we inadvertently work for the enemy, when we forget our mission. And it's easy to just make it into a church into a thing we do, isn't it? When we do this, we work for the enemy. We perpetuate the lie that the church is about something else than what it is. Being the temple takes intentional living. This is the M of blossom. We talk about blossom. Believe, love, obey, serve, multiply. So what do each of those things mean? Well, when we get to the M, multiply, what does it mean? Well, we've talked a lot about how, how multiply means send, go. Wherever you at, your field, your work, your, <coughs> you, you know, your neighborhood, your little league team, your soccer team. Whatever you do, your, wherever you are, you are sent talk to people about Jesus but the other aspect of multiply and it's part of our mission is invite this is one of the reasons why we're encouraging you to give someone that little flyer uh, and say come to Easter Sunday uh, most people want to go to church sometime on Christmas or Easter right what a better opportunity to bring them in and, and, and introduce them to the family of Christ and let them hear the gospel this good news of Jesus Oh, man, I'm excited. I've got a couple neighbors I'm handing these things out to. I would just encourage you all to do the same thing. It's part of it. It's going out and it's bringing back into our family. It's part of the mission. Now, this is not about status. Ananias and Sapphira wanted the church to be about status, they wanted it to be all about them. They wanted to look really good. They wanted to be part of the church. They wanted the status of someone like Barnabas, really generous. They wanted their money too, they wanted it all. They wanted to give their money away and have their money. They were downgrading the importance of the mission of the church. It was like D-Day. They forgot that the victory had been won, but now they were sort of mopping up afterwards. They forgot that they were trying to, the mission of the church is to bring people into the kingdom because we're bringing God's kingdom here. They forgot it. They got it on status. It's like people who join church because they need more you know, contacts for their business. (laughs) You know, it's like people who join a new church because they've exhausted the old church's It's about status. It's about, I want to be in a position of power so I can have a position of status. And we miss church when we think about it that way. Ananias and Sapphira were willing to lie directly to God. And then they plotted together to do that. Verse 2 tells us clearly that they got together and planned this. And then in verse 7 to 9, when Peter is talking to Sapphira, he says, about, about three hours later, Ananias' wife came in. Not knowing what had happened to her husband, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you paid? Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the, feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out also and this really isn't about money let's just be clear on that this is not about if you don't give more money to god god will strike you down <laughs> this is not what this is about this is about mistaking the purpose of the church as a symbol of status peter says do what you want with the money don't use the church to accomplish your ends the church must service me so many people say listen to the radio um, uh, and it was, a, it was a show where people were debating about the new pope. You know, who should the new pope be? And uh, they were discussing. And one of the panel, people on the panel, panel said, the pope ought to listen to the people who elected him and change all these things that they want changed. And one of the other people on the panel stopped and said, um, I'm out. The Catholic Church is not a democracy. <laughs> the pope's job is more important than that. I thought, ah, you know what, that's a good reminder. The church is not a democracy where we come in and we say, I'm going to wield my power and influence to get things my way the way I want. No, the church is about being on a mission to bring God's kingdom to this world. I'm still trying to figure that out. How do we do this in a culture that's all about me? We, the church, set aside our wants, and we meet the wants of others. Hard. it's really hard but if we're going to be on a mission together to accomplish this we must set aside our wants and our desires and our felt needs and all these things and say we are on a mission to bring glory to God you see the church is important you must understand it's not God's chosen vehicle I mean it is God's chosen vehicle to save the world we must understand that and there's a warning to those who are not on mission. Verse 10. Look at the reaction. Verse 10. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Fear is awe. Fear is some terror. And there's a warning here that God's not messing around. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We can't read Acts chapter 5 without stopping and just taking a moment to pause and let the weightiness of God and His character and our mission just settle in our hearts. It's a tough one. But the cool thing about it is that for those who are on mission, the joy that's there. You want to experience life? Set aside your desires and join God in His work. Jesus did it. That's what he did. He set aside his desires. He went to the cross. For the joy set before him, scripture says. Real life, real joy, is embracing Jesus and his purpose for the church. And so you want to experience life? Uh, Jesus did. Now we're continuing with it. Um, So... I was talking to someone in our church recently who, on Faith and Action Sunday, six months ago, um, encountered a family that kind of had a need, in, uh, an elderly family. And this elderly family has never come to uh, a gathering of our church. They may have come to Christmas Eve service, but they've never come to a gathering. But this person, he regularly stops by their house just to check on, it, check on them, just to see how they're doing, just to see if they need anything. And I was just thinking about this guy who was you know, telling this. I was asking about what that was like to do that. The joy that filled his face as he talked about setting aside his needs, trying to minister and reach and love other people. I like it just warmed my heart, you know? I was like, yes! I love that, that we get it. We get it, we get it. We're, we have people all over that get this idea that, that yes, God is holy, and yes, we have a mission, and God put us here to give our lives away. He got more joy out of doing that than the people who received it. And that's what happens. So, do you you want to avoid working for the enemy? His greatest weapon, I think, is apathy and busyness. Partnered with selfishness and pride. Truth-telling is important because God is holy. Rooting out selfishness is important because the church and the mission of the church is important. And for the first time in Acts chapter 5, we are reminded that the enemy is at work. Trying to make the church about something that it isn't. So uh, last Sunday, um, (laughs) I walked up um, to Sarah Joy. And if you know Sarah, uh, you know Sarah attends here. Her uh, her son and then her mom and dad, Mark and Mindy, uh, attend here as well. Are you got anybody here? I don't think they're here today. Um, so anyway, so I walked up to Sarah, and I said, Hey, Mindy, how you doing? And she looks at me, and she says, What did you call me? <laughs> Not that mean, but that's, you know, like, what did you just say? And I said, Hey, Sarah, how you doing? <laughs> oh, I swore you could have called, you know, I swore you called me your, your mom's name. Now, my mom's name. Now, here's the deal. At that moment, she knew it. And I knew it, right? She knew that I'd said, that her, <laughs> called her Mindy, and I knew it. I was hoping that she would just sort of save my pride and swoop her under the rug. And for like two seconds, there was this awkward pause. And then I stopped, and I just said, no, I called you Mindy. I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. You know, and then I went over and grabbed her mom, and we all laughed about it together. But here's the thing, as I thought back on that, I sent Sarah this apology email this week, because why did I do why for a second did I say, no, I called you Sarah. I did that for my, for sake of my pride. I did that because I knew I knew her name was Sarah. I knew it wasn't Mindy, but yet it came out. I did it for the sake of my pride. And for two or three seconds or whatever that was, I flirted with going down a road that was about me and not about honesty. And I said, oh, God, root that out in me. Root that out. Let me be rooted in your holiness and in the importance of the mission of the church. Let it not be about me. Ananias and Sapphira got trapped in the image trap. Um, remember that commercial years ago? Uh, image is everything was the tagline. It was a soft drink. Image is everything. I used to scream at the TV whenever I'd see that. No, it's not! Who cares? God is everything, his holiness, our part of what he's doing. That makes the church really, really, really important. Today, my challenge to you is to root yourself in God's character. Remember, he's a holy, loving, beautiful, wonderful, amazing God, and then live holy because you're his temple. And as his temple, be that temple as you live out your faith this week. It could be as simple as someone asking someone, what do you think about Jesus? And listening. It could be someone saying, hey, come with me next week. I'd love for you to meet my family. Come on in. I love it. Next week's going to be awesome. I can't wait. It's exciting because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Let's live like that this week as we go out. Would you stand as we pray, and we'll close. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you today, half a church. Lord, we pray for all those who are traveling on spring break, who are stuck because of the weather somewhere, who are sick. God, but we're excited because we long to be rooted in your holiness And to remember that the church is important. God, give us the strength to do that this week. Give us the strength to live passionately for the glory of God. Give us the strength to be part of what you're doing. We pray this in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.